Happy Independence Day weekend. You know, tomorrow when we're eating hot dogs, lighting off firecrackers, we might just give a little bit of thought to the founding of our country, right? Like maybe a little bit. If we do, if you're like me, you might have a tendency to look back at the founding and kind of oversimplify things, like really truncate it, like Boston Tea Party, Declaration of Independence, fight the war, Constitution, okay, good, we're good to go. Boom, new country, we're sailing. Wasn't so simple though, was it? If you know your history, you know that the founding of our nation was just far from certain. It was far from easy. First, we had to win that war, which was seemingly against all odds. Then we had to form that government. That took a couple different tries. Then we had to decide what was going to go in that constitution that we have today, and that was far from perfect. Why do you think we need all those amendments? And then if that weren't all enough, a few years later, we had to fight a second war against the British again, and they, they ransacked our capital and burned the White House to the ground. This is a bumpy road. It's far from certain, and yet, by the grace of God, we're celebrating the founding, the establishment, the continuation of our nation almost 250 years later. Our passage today, we're going to see the founding of a different kingdom. We're going to see the founding of David's kingdom, and like our own nation, it, it, it was far from certain. You know, when we look back, we might have just think David just kind of waltzed in there and, you know, came into Jerusalem and started ruling over all of Israel, and that is not what happened. So that's what our, our passage is going to be about today, of how David came into his kingdom, but it started small. Just one tribe in the, in the city of Hebron, not all the tribes, not in Jerusalem. And how even in this small infant kingdom, he immediately faced three major threats, three major events that, that threatened to undo his kingdom before it even really got going. But how by the grace of God, God's promise to David endured. God's promise prevailed and he came into the fullness of his kingdom. Now we're going to be covering a lot of ground today. Second Samuel, chapters 1 through 5. Can't possibly go through it all. We're going to be jumping around a lot. It's probably going to be a little frustrating. Just be patient. Hang in there. And as we're doing this, as we're, as we're, as we're going through and diving in at the beginning of Second Samuel, you might, you might be wondering, what, what does this all have to do with us today? I mean, we don't, we don't live under a kingship. We have this democratic republic. We, we live in the United States of America in 2022. We're not in, we're not in the Middle East in 1000 BC. What's this all about today? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it has a lot to do for you today. Because see, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you do live in a kingdom. It's not the kingdom of David, it's the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ is your king, and he's ruling and reigning in your heart. His kingdom exists, is manifest in each and every one of us who follows Jesus. And in all of us corporately as his church and his kingdom reigns to the extent that we submit to his kingship in our lives. And just as it was a bumpy road for David 
to come into the fullness of his kingdom. It's a bumpy road for us too, isn't it? But you know, God promises. God promises one day the fullness of the kingdom when our Lord King Jesus Christ returns and fully and finally establishes it here on this earth. So David had to cling to the promises of God in these early years of his kingdom and we have to cling to the promises of God as we fight, toil, and struggle in the kingdom today. That's what this passage is all about. That's why it matters for you and for me. So let's start diving in here. Last week, we left off at the end of 1 Samuel with the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. As we pick up our story today, in chapter one, David learns about the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, and I would love to preach a whole sermon about his lament, but I'm not. (laughs) Maybe another day. But David laments over this adversary of his for years and years and years, he laments over him. And he laments over his dear friend, his closest friend, the closest friend a a guy could ever have in Jonathan. And that's in chapter one. And then at the beginning of chapter two, which is really where we're gonna pick up our story, David inquires of the Lord, what should I do next? Verse one says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? You see, what's going on here is, you know, David was living with the Philistines, if you remember, and he wants to know, is is, is now the time? Is now the time for me to go to my hometown, my my hometown area, and start holding myself out as king, he inquires of the Lord, which is very curious because he knows God's promised him the kingdom and he knows Saul is dead. And so you would just think it would be obvious to him that now is the time. Now's the time, David. And yet he inquires of the Lord first. He doesn't presume. He seeks the Lord's will and his guidance. God says, yeah, go on up, go to Hebron in Judah. But right away in this, in this, in this inquiry, this question, this, this coming to, we have this great, another great contrast between Saul and David. So last week, Pastor Chris outlined two of the major contrasts between Saul and David, and that was their eagerness, their willingness to acknowledge, recognize the grace of God in their lives. David did that often, Saul didn't. And then also to repent of their sins because David, as good as he was, wasn't perfect. And Saul, of course, time and again, failed to repent. And David, though, was eager to repent. And, and therefore, the, God took the kingdom from the, the, the man who was not after his own heart and he gave it to the man who was after his own heart. Those are the two big contrasts between Saul and David we talked about last week. And, and yet here in the beginning of 2 Samuel, we see another big contrast and and that's this 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 willingness to to go before the Lord and submit to his will. David knew he'd been promised the kingdom and he knows Saul's dead, but he doesn't presume that that's what he's supposed to do. He goes to the Lord and he inquires and whatever the Lord tells him, he's going to submit to it. So I think right away we're challenged. We're challenged here. I think we're challenged 
to ask ourselves is, is this how we live our lives? Like when we consider the, the, the major or the minor decisions of our life, do we inquire of the Lord? When we're considering, where should I, where should I work? Where should I live? How should I spend my time? What things should I sign up for? How should I spend my money? My money. What things should I purchase? What things should I invest in? Do we inquire before the Lord? Do we take those things before the Lord? Do we, do we seek his will, his guidance in prayer, in his word, through the counsel of godly brothers and sisters? Do we even ask? Or do we just kind of, yeah, we just kind of go along. We just go with the flow. Whatever, whatever the world's doing, we just kind of do it. And it's not bad, it's not wrong, so we just do it. We don't think about it, we don't inquire. Just kind of do our own thing. It's maybe a minor point of the passage, but I think it's a major point in how we live our lives and the big things and the little things. Do we take them before the Lord? And we're challenged in that. I'm thankful for that challenge. And, and here we have a model in God's word of somebody who inquired, somebody who submitted, somebody who sought guidance, and that's in King David. Saul. Saul wasn't that way, was he? No, Saul wasn't that way. We saw it all through 1 Samuel. Saul not only didn't ask God first, time and again, Saul knew exactly what the Lord wanted him to do, and he did exactly the opposite. That's how Saul lived his life. He went his own way. Our story today, Saul's dead. But that legacy lives on. It lives on in his top general, Abner, a guy named Abner. He's kind of prominent in our story today. He's carrying on this legacy of Saul, this refusal to do the will of the Lord. Let's read, in, starting in verse 8, what Abner does next. So David goes into Hebron, part of Judah, sets, his up, sets himself up as king, but Abner, starting in verse 8, but Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maenam. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and, and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So what's Abner doing here? Abner's rejecting the kingship of David. He's rejecting David as king. He takes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, say that 10 times fast. And he sets him up as king over all of Israel, meaning all the tribes other than Judah. David's king over Judah. Abner, kind of the power behind the throne, sets up Ishbosheth as king over all the rest. And in so doing, he's not only rejecting David, but he's really rejecting God. You see, Abner knows. Abner knows the promise to David. Abner knows, we see it in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. If you're a fast flipper, you can look at it there. Abner tells Ishbosheth, the Lord has sworn to David to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. Abner knows. Abner knows the will of the Lord. 
He knows it's, it's for David to be the king over all of Israel. And yet he rejects that will and he goes to war against David. Verse one of chapter three says there's a, a, a long war. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So David's finally on the cusp of his long awaited kingdom. He was promised this as a boy. It's finally arrived, Saul's dead. And immediately he's faced with the threat of rebellion. This rebellion that that at its core is really a rejection of God. The words of Samuel echo loudly here. If you recall back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you may not recall, I'll remind you. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, Samuel says to Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Rebellion is rejection against God. Abner's rebellion against David is rebellion against God. It's a rejection of God's kingship and God's will over his life. Theologian Millard Erickson says that the essence of sin is the displacement of God. What's that mean? It means that the taking off of the throne of God, taking off God from his proper place, displacing him for anything else. The essence of sin. We see it in the very first pages of scripture, Adam and Eve, they eat of the forbidden fruit because they want to be like God. The very first commandment of the ten, the 10 commandments is I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And when we fail to do that, in any respect, we're displacing him from his rightful place as king over our lives. When we fail, when we fall into sin, we're like Abner in his rebellion and we see the essence of sin in this. Knowing God, knowing his good and perfect will and choosing to do anything else instead. Now I have to admit that when I've thought of rebellion against God, First thing that comes to mind, because my kids have this cartoon they watch, is, uh, is uh, Lucifer and his angels, his fallen angels, warring against Michael and, and, and God and his angels in heaven. That's rebellion against God, of course. The other thing that comes to mind often is, is, a, is a Romans chapter one situation. Like someone that's so given over to their sin. They're just so craven. They're just so relishing in it. That Paul, that Paul says at the end of Romans chapter one and verse 32, that they not only sin, but they give approval to those for the practice of their sin. That's often what I think of when I think of rebellion against God. And that is true. That is rebellion against God. But as, as I, as a follower of Jesus, sit under this word, 
And I'm asking God, what's this mean for me today? I'm, I'm challenged by the fact that, that my sin is rebellion against God. My life, our lives are made up of, of the 10,000 little moments, as, as author Paul Tripp likes to say. The 10,000 little moments of life make up really who we are, what we do, how things go. And it's in those moments when we have a choice between doing what is right, what we know what is right, and we're struggling, even you Christians, we're struggling with the temptation to do what is wrong. It's just, it's just that little lustful gaze. Or that little lingering thought. It just, it's little, it just, but it, it just goes on a little too long. That little, little bit of gossip, it's harmless. That little lie, it's convenient. That little bit of bitterness you kind of hang on to or that, that little bit of jealousy you harbor, that little bit of judge, judgmentalism that you, you cast on your, your brother or, or your sister in your heart. In secret, it's small. Every time we give in to one of those little temptations to sin, we are in rebellion against God. Have you ever thought of it that way? That those little, those little sins, those little moments, little imperfections, I'm not perfect, I'm not perfect. It's a rebellion. It's a knowing what's, what's right and choosing to do what is wrong. I need to start thinking of it that way. I need to have the mind of, of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. He said, take every thought captive to obey Christ. I need to submit to the Lord's kingship, his rule in my life all the time and in every little thing. And I'm far from it. Church, his kingdom has come and his kingdom is manifest. It's, it's, it's known, it's, it's showing to the extent that we, his church, his bride, his children, submit to his kingship in our lives, in everything. why he taught us to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven the kingdom has come he inaugurated it as first coming but it's still coming it's still coming thy kingdom come let it come lord in my heart in my life more and more thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so the first major threat to david's young kingdom is a huge issue, enemy, threat in the kingdom of God today, and that's rebellion. It's rebellion. And if rebellion is, is, is displacing God, then that, of course, necessarily implies that you are placing something else on the throne instead. And I think, and I think you'd agree, that so often that something else is, uh, is ourselves, like we, we substitute our agenda, we place our agenda, our thoughts, what we think to be right, 
in place of God, his agenda, what we know to be right. Selfishness, selfishness. We're gonna see that on full display here in this second and third threat to David's young kingdom, selfishness. So these second and third threats, we're gonna consider them together. It's, it's, it, it's the murder of Abner. That's the general, Saul's general. He goes, he's gonna get murdered. And it's the murder of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, the, the, the would-be propped up king. He gets murdered too. And we see selfishness and sin, devastation on full display here. So what's the story? In chapter three, Abner, for selfish reasons, he decides to ditch Ishbosheth. He's gonna hitch his wagon to David instead. That's gonna be better for him. But not only that, he's gonna bring all Israel with him. And so we think this is a great thing as we're reading through chapter three. We think, yes, it's finally come. All the tribes are coming over to David. Abner switches sides. He's bringing all of Israel with him. But the problem is, back in chapter two, Abner killed the brother of David's top general, Joab. So what happened there? Joab is David's top general. He's like David's Abner. And there was one particular battle in this war that is only happening because of the rebellion, you know. But Joab had two brothers, Abishai and Azahel. And Azahel was super fast. It says he was, he was as swift a foot as a gazelle. It's really fast. If you ever watch those nature shows, they often get away from the lion. It's really fast. And so in this battle, Abner's running because he's losing and he's on the run. And Azahel is running him down. He's Usain Bolt. He's going to catch him. But as Azahel comes upon him to, to kill him, Abner does this back thrust with his spear that's so forceful, so hard, and the, 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 the impact is so great that the butt of the spear juts out the back end of Abner. Abner, Azahel. It's gruesome, it's gritty. It's one of those parts in scripture where you're like, what in the world? Like, why did this detail make it in? But I think one thing we can infer pretty certainly is that maybe this is why Joab, Joab didn't forget. Joab didn't forget the killing of his brother Azahel. And so when Joab learns that Abner, the guy that killed his brother, is, is switching sides, coming into David's camp, it's all gonna be great, we're, we're on the same team now, Joab is not having it. Joab is upset. And he's so upset that, that he recruits his, his brother Abishai and they just straight up murder Abner. They just take him aside and they murder him. And that's, this is even a bigger deal than that sounds because David had already promised safety to Abner and Abner's on David's turf, turf when he gets murdered. And so it looks like David double-crossed Abner. And so this has the potential to just totally undo this peace treaty that's happening. This, this is gonna be the United Kingdom finally for David. And this, has, this murder for selfish revenge has the, the potential to just undo all of it. It's super selfish to Joab. Joab knows. Joab's supposed to be loyal to his king, to David. But instead of supporting David's kingship and doing the right thing, submitting to King David, he does this reckless act of defiance and he, 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 he murders 
Abner for revenge. He substitutes his own agenda for David's, for God's agenda. So that's another huge threat to David's kingdom. This is the second major threat. Fortunately for David, he's able to avert disaster by the grace of God. He, he rebukes Joab. He disavows any wrongdoing. He has a great public mourning for Abner. And this satisfies the people that David really is innocent. And so that's why in chapter three, verse 37, we read, so all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. David's just, he demonstrates, he proves his innocence. So by God's grace, he averts this disaster, but he's still not out of the woods. There's a third event, a third thing that threatens to undo all of this. It's another murder, another act of self-seeking sin. This time, two brothers from Saul's tribe, Benjamin, when they learn that Abner is dead, it's pretty big news. They can see the writing on the wall, so to speak. And so they conspire to murder Ishbosheth. And they do this because they think they're gonna win favor from David. Like he's just gonna be happy about this. We killed your rival king. And so that's exactly what they do. This is in chapter four. We can start in verse seven. They sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's napping. And then in verse seven, we read, when they came into the house as he, Ishbosheth, lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. They're, they're, they're invoking the name of the Lord in this. They're, they're pretending to give credit to God for this murder. It's really, of course, for their own self-interest. They're, they're, they're thinking they're gonna get a cush job in David's administration. That's what's going on here. So they bring this head as a trophy and think David's gonna roll out the red carpet. We see it in Abner's murder. We see it in Ishbosheth's murder. How destructive it is when we do our will instead of God's will. How deadly it is, Death, literally deadly. They got the head. When we know the right thing to do and we do something else. Like that affair that kills a marriage. Or that jealousy that kills a friendship. Or that lie that kills trust. Or that anger that kills affection. Or, or that bitterness that kills joy. Sin is deadly and it leaves in its path a wake of destruction, heads and dead bodies. 
know, we talked about those 10,000 little moments, right? And you've got the choice between doing what's right and doing what's wrong, and it's just a little thing. Don't fool yourself into thinking that those little things stay little. So yeah, your marriage is dead because of an affair, but it started with that little lustful gaze, that little bit of giving in to some flirtation. Your job is dead. It's taken from you. Yeah, because you're not a good worker, you slack off, you call in sick all the time, and they finally caught up to you. But it started with that little bit of laziness, just that little lie, <coughs> not feeling good today. The relationship with that close family member, it's dead now. Yeah, because there was a big blow up and you let it all out, you vented what you've been storing up for years and years and years. What started with that little bitterness that you just didn't let go of. That little clinging to unforgiveness little bit of anger that you stoked, that you nursed until it became a flame. You fanned it into a raging fire and it has destroyed that relationship. The deaths start with the little things, the little rebellions. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin is deadly serious. And once again, in our story, sin has the potential to to undo everything, to outrage the other tribes, to throw off the peace treaty. We're going back to war, more death, more destruction. Thankfully, though, once again, God is gracious. David is faithful. David doesn't have anything to do with it or of it with it. You see, what the murdering brothers didn't know is that Something really similar happened back in chapter one. One of those little parts that we just had to gloss over. Something really similar happened back in chapter one. The guy that brought David the news of Saul's death came pretty glibly about that. And he even bragged that he was the one to finish off Saul, which was probably a lie. He was just doing it to gain favor with David. And David was not impressed then either. And he had the man executed for killing the Lord's anointed. And so these brothers, these Benjaminites, they they didn't know that or they've forgotten it. They're here with the head. They're thinking they're going to get the favors now. And David doesn't have anything, any of it. He doesn't give them the love. Let's look at verse 9 of chapter 4. David answered these brothers, As the Lord lives... As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more 
when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. So once again, David averts disaster with this dramatic display of his innocence. Once again, God is gracious, David is faithful, and then finally, beginning of chapter five, things finally come together for David in his kingdom. Take a look at verse one of chapter five. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king of Israel." David's kingdom has finally come. God kept his promise. The people submitted to the will of God. Did you catch that? They knew about the promise. They finally submit to God's will. Three times this promised kingdom was threatened by rebellion and selfishness, ugly, deadly sins. But the Lord redeemed David from every adversity. The Lord redeemed David from every adversity for his whole life. He was anointed king as, as, this, as this boy tending his dad's flocks. He comes into his kingdom as a grown, battle-hardened man because the Lord redeemed him from every adversity and now he is the shepherd king of God's people. David prevailed because God was with him. And so God's gonna, God's with him then, God's with him for his whole life. We're gonna see God just continue to bless him here through verse 10 of chapter five, what happens is David goes, he's now anointed king of Israel, and he goes and he captures the city of Jerusalem as his new capital. See, Jerusalem had been in enemy hands. David takes it, he sets up the kingship there, that is now the capital over the kingdom of all Israel. And in verse 10, it's got this great summary verse Verse 10 says, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So three times in our passage, we're reminded of the, the ugliness and deadliness of sin. But that is not where God left David. And it's not where he leaves you and me. We today, church, it's like we're in Hebron, right? We're toiling, we're struggling, we're striving, we're falling, we're stumbling. But God doesn't leave us in Hebron. He's not gonna. He's promised us Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is coming. If you know the end of your Bible at all, you know, there's this new city, a new Jerusalem that's coming. 
And you know, that's where the Lord is gonna dwell. That's where his kingdom is gonna be complete and his people are gonna be dwelling right there with him in his immediate presence. They're not gonna need a son anymore because the presence of him is gonna give off the light. And there's not, gonna, there's not gonna be any more sin. There's not gonna be any more struggling and there's not gonna be any more death. And that's the promise we've gotta to cling to as we struggle and toil and stumble in Hebron. God's kingdom has come. It is coming in us. It will come. We who believe in Jesus and serve him as our king, we are in his kingdom now. We are. And we're gonna be ushered into the fullness of his kingdom when he returns. And how do we know? How do we know this is gonna happen? What hope do we have to cling to? Hear David's words again in verse nine of chapter four. Hear these words, church. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every adversity, Church, we have, we have hope now because the Lord lives. He didn't stay dead, did he? He came out of the tomb. He appeared among his disciples. He said, look, touch me. Eat with me. I'm alive. And he ascended to heaven where he is ruling and reigning right now over his kingdom. And it's from heaven where he's gonna return to this earth to fully and finally establish his kingdom forever. We have hope now, church, because he lives. And we have hope now, church, because he redeems. He has redeemed us. David, David was saved from these disasters because he convinced the people that he was innocent of the shedding of blood. Our Lord, our King, the new and better David, he redeems, he saves by the shedding of his own innocent blood. And Hebrews says that that blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what's the blood of Abel speak? Remember that story? The blood of Abel speaks of death. The blood of Abel speaks of sin, brother Cain murdering him. The blood of Abel speaks condemnation, guilt over you, sinner. It's not what the blood of Jesus speaks. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks of the selfless, atoning sacrifice of the one, the Lamb of God our king. And that's a better word. The blood of Jesus says it is finished. The blood of Jesus says you are forgiven. The blood of Jesus is an invitation to come, to draw near, to submit to the kingship, the good shepherding kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. That's a better word, amen? If you're here today and you've never accepted that invitation, if you're still living in rebellion, 
The invitation is for you and it's for today. Hebrews also says today, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, if you hear the word of the Lord, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Don't stay in that rebellious enemy, dead in your sins state anymore. Don't live in your own kingdom anymore. Receive the gift. Receive what was purchased for you by the blood of King Jesus on the cross. Turn from, take off your crown over your life. Get off your throne and get on your knees before the throne of the Lord. Do it today. If you are a follower of King Jesus, you believe You've been redeemed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because his blood is over you and it speaks that better word. But the invitation for you is still the same. The invitation is to draw near. The invitation is to submit. The invitation is to seek the kingdom first. Seek my kingdom first and all these things will be given to you. Church, we are that city on a hill. We are that that lamp, that light that should not be covered. The kingdom of God is reigning and 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 it's shining out through us who believe. And so church, pray. Pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that for you. Pray that for my life. Pray that for Harmony Bible Church. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and cling to the redemption that you have in Christ and cling to the life that you have in Christ because your Redeemer lives. Cling to that hope and look forward to the new Jerusalem that's coming. Look forward to his coming. Look forward to his return. Long for it. Live for it. Church, this is big stuff. Even in the little moments, take every thought captive to obey Christ. We were bought with a price, church. It cost our king everything. So draw near to the Lord, submit to him, and glorify him in everything, in everything. We face a lot of trials. We face a lot of temptations. We have a lot of falls. But don't give up hope here in Hebron because God's promise reveals and Jerusalem is coming. And cling to that hope. And I'll close with the words of Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast. So church, hold fast. This is for you. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. He will surely do it.